Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Jake Halpern here. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that Deep Cover Season 2 will be dropping weekly on Mondays. But the full season is available right now, ad-free, for Pushkin Plus subscribers. That's all 10 episodes right away. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. Previously on Deep Cover. In 1986, Bob Cooley, a Chicago lawyer who had worked for the mob, walked into the office of a federal prosecutor and offered to cooperate. Prosecutors were mystified. Why was he doing this? Up until this moment, Bob Cooley had a reputation as a flashy criminal defense lawyer who helped at least one person get away with murder, literally. In 1977, Bob fixed the trial of Harry Alamon, a legendary mafia hitman. The judge's not guilty verdict provoked outrage from both the media and the public. They couldn't even speak. That's how mad and how livid they were. They could not believe that this judge didn't find him guilty. The place went into a a panic. But for the mob, this case proved Bob's worth. He could be their ace in the hole. Not long ago, I called up this guy who used to know Bob. We're going to call him Nick. Nick isn't his real name. It's just a nickname that we're using to protect his identity. Bob Cooley was the best, and he was good at fixing cases, and they, they knew how good he was. If I, I always said if I get into some deep shit, it's going to be Bob. And Nick was always on the edge of some deep shit. I was a captain in the mob. Not only waving my flag, but I was one of the smarter guys out there. My crew was known as the enforcement crew, 
and and we we would go and do the dirty jobs that other people couldn't handle. Back in the day, Nick's specialty was collecting unjuice loans. I asked him how he operated, what he'd do if I owed him money and didn't pay up. Nick says he'd start by asking for it politely, but if that didn't work, well... I tell you, Jake, you know, you got 24 hours to come up with that money. If you don't come up with the money, I'm going to come bust your fucking head. Or pop your eyes out and eat them like grapes. Any 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 lingo like that. Any any kind of. Sometimes you got to grab the person by the throat. Sometimes you got to grab. You know. Sometimes you got to. You know. Knock them on to break their nose. It all depends what the scenario is. Perhaps inevitably, Nick or one of his guys would get in trouble with the cops. When that happened, he knew he could count on Bob, and the proof was the Harry Elamon case. When you get a guy that's a hitman. And, and you get him off of a major case, a murder case, I mean, every, everybody's going to say, everybody says, hey, I get in trouble, I'm going to Bob. Which kind of makes you wonder, how'd Bob become the kind of guy who'd do this anyway? Who'd fix cases for the mob and think he could get away with it? In this episode, we're going to take a hard look at how Bob became Bob and where it all started to go wrong for him. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Mobland. Episode 4, The Favorite Son. Bob had taken a big risk by getting involved with the Harry Elamon trial. First, he'd made a risky promise to Pat Marcy, the mob's political czar, that he could fix the case. He'd also assured Harry that all would go well. And he'd targeted a judge with an honorable reputation. The whole thing, start to finish, was very bold. But somehow or another, it all worked out. For Bob and the outfit, anyhow. According to Bob... Harry, the hitman, essentially became his PR guy, told him, Listen, give me some of your cards, he said, because uh, I got all kinds of business. I got all kinds of people now. He says, you're going to be the top lawyer in the city. Business was better than ever for Bob. But still, he kept his guard up. Bob says he always assumed everyone he met was wearing a wire. This kind of paranoia kept him safe. And with new clients, Bob also avoided overpromising. He said, well, but can you guarantee something? I said, I can't guarantee anything. I'll just do the best that I can. But his best was plenty good enough. I've got thousands of friends. I mean, thousands of friends in the city of Chicago. Bob was living it up. I'm living a fantastic life. I've got all the friends in the world. I've got sweethearts coming up and down and all around. Sometimes I got this sense from talking to Bob that being a lawyer for the mob was all glamour, that he lived a charmed life. And look, in many ways he did. According to Bob, unless he was trying a case, his workdays were generally over by midday. 
Then he'd grab lunch. Next, he'd have a steam bath and then a massage. In the summer, he might hang out at his poolside cabana. Otherwise, he'd go back to the office, head to the conference room, where he'd play cards. Gin was his game. Then, at night, he'd hit the clubs, or he'd fly to Vegas. One time, he even had dinner with Frank Sinatra and picked up the tab. This was Bob's life. But he was still a lawyer who needed an office and a filing cabinet and even a pencil sharpener. And he had this too. He shared a workspace downtown with a few other lawyers, including his brother, Dennis Cooley. They actually used the same desk, sort of like a timeshare. Well, we were in the same office, literally the same room. I would just use it sometimes, he'd use it sometimes. Dennis was four years younger than Bob. He also started off as a police officer, then became a lawyer. But here, their paths diverged sharply. Dennis went on to become a prosecutor, and a good one. At some point, he ran an entire division. I talked to a bunch of people who knew Dennis from back then, and they all pretty much said the same thing. Dennis was an honest and honorable guy. Eventually, Dennis decided to go into private practice, and like his brother, he became a criminal defense lawyer. But unlike Bob, Dennis was a clean criminal defense lawyer, which wasn't easy. He was practicing law in a system where so many of his competitors were guys who would place bribes. Of course I resented it. Yes, absolutely resented it. I resented the fact that I had to work hard for my money, and these other guys didn't. You know, when you're practicing law and you know you're a better attorney than the next guy and yet the next guy seems to win all these cases in front of these particular judges and it's like this is bullshit but that's the way it was dennis says that he didn't know the full extent of bob's shady dealings but there were moments when he did get a sense for what his brother was up to you know some of the people who would who would come in were not the kind of people i would normally end up with as a client some of them were you know Outright scary looking. You know, I just kept I just kept the hell away from him. Did you ever pull Bob aside and say, like, what are you doing? Cut it out? I don't. That would have been a complete, total waste of time. I don't think he would have listened to me. Interestingly, there were things about Bob that Dennis seemed to admire. He said that Bob was really good in front of a jury, that he really knew how to connect with the jurors, win them over, which I found believable. I mean, Bob could be very charming. He also says that Bob wasn't afraid to stand up to bullies. This was true when Bob was a kid. He was short back then. People called him shrimp, which drove him crazy. Dennis says one time, Bob got in a fight with this much bigger kid. He was so much different in size than this big guy. He would literally have to jump up to hit him in the face. And he would do that. And he backed the big kid off. And that kind of left an impression with me how aggressive he could be, you know, and how uh, uh, how he wouldn't back off from certain challenges. It also seemed telling to me that Dennis found all of these reasons to admire Bob. Dennis was a guy who saw the best in others, even his shady brother. So there were the Cooley brothers, Bob and Dennis, sharing the exact same desk, It was a powerful image. They seemed to be symbolic of the two realms of the Chicago legal system, the clean and the dirty, operating side by side, morally opposed, but hopelessly interconnected. 
And for me, it also raised the question, how had these two brothers turned out so differently? The Cooleys were known as a family of honest cops. Bob's parents were devoutly religious. So what exactly happened with Bob? Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. To really understand Bob Cooley, we're going to go deep into his relationship with his father, But I want to start by giving you a picture of what the Cooley family was like back when Bob was a kid. And to do this, I got to take you back to the 1940s. The family lived on the south side of Chicago in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. It was a good childhood, actually. Uh, We were nine kids, so, you know, so that, that is an experience in itself. That's Tim Cooley, another one of Bob's six brothers. He lives in Vermont now. And as I tried to make sense of Bob's childhood, he became my guide, my guru, really. I am a massage therapist and a yoga teacher, two things which really, really make me happy. I work at a a gay-run retreat center uh, doing yoga and, and massage there. It's a community that is about helping people grow, basically, helping people be the fullest that they can be. Tim is Bob's younger brother, and he spent a lot of time reflecting on his childhood and the Cooley family. He told me that their father, Jim Cooley, was extremely pious. All the Cooley kids said this, by the way, that their dad made them pray together. Jim Cooley, the dad, actually went to a Catholic seminary and studied for the priesthood before deciding to become a cop and eventually a detective. And by all accounts, he was an honest policeman, never took a bribe, and didn't look for trouble. Well, because my father was a really gentle man. He was like the least macho man I've ever met in my life, (laughs) to some degree. He really was. He was, I mean, he had an Irish temper, (laughs) mind you, you know, so he would, he would get angry at times or whatever, but he was a, he was very, he was very mild. To be clear, Tim doesn't have any illusions about his father. He told me straight up, his dad could be a racist. But for the most part, Tim says he has fond memories of growing up in the Cooley household. We never felt like we were without. You know, we, I mean, we were just sort of the same as everybody else, we thought. We would have called ourselves middle class, I guess. On the other hand, Bob told me that his family grew up very poor. I never had clothes. I never had new clothes as I grew up. All my clothes were, you know, my mother would be over basically at the school begging, begging for stuff. Because she had to, you know, for the, you know, for the sake of the kids. And, and I was really angry for a long time being born into a family with all these kids. I really was. I was angry at God because so many of people I knew had so much more than me. The worst for Bob was when his mother took him shopping for groceries and scoured the shelves for dented cans so she could ask the clerk for a discount for a few pennies off. This mortified Bob. I asked Tim about this. There you have Bob and me (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) The difference is that I would admire my mother for that, whereas Bob cared more about how things looked or how things seemed to others, I would say, than I did. As a kid, Bob worked all kinds of jobs, but that pocket money only got him so far. And he was still angry and frustrated by what he didn't have. And that sort of explains, on some level, his drive to 
be financially successful, whatever it took for him to get that. He was always driven on some level, driven, and I guess you would say a bit of a troublemaker, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, he, he would be good at getting out of trouble by hook or by crook, basically, but he was always sort of working an angle. And Bob admits to this. He describes his childhood as one long tale of rule-breaking, cheating on tests, starting fights, skipping church. Let me tell you, when it came to the Cooley household, Santa did not have to check his list twice. And given all of this, you might think that Bob's hero was, well, Jesse James or John Dillinger or some other scofflaw. Nope. Interestingly, the one person that I always heard Bob speak of with almost unflagging admiration was actually his dad. He extolled his dad's virtues. I can tell you, when I was a kid growing up, I'd go in there and steal candy and stuff like that because I was hungry and because, you know, I couldn't, I had no money in my pockets. My dad would never have done something like that. Did you feel any sense of guilt or any sense that you weren't living up to your dad's standards? No, no, not at all. Honestly, this surprised me. Given how much he revered his dad, it seemed like maybe Bob would just have a little bit of a hard time looking his dad in the eye or feel just a bit sheepish about his transgressions. Nope, says Bob. There was one occasion, however, when Bob seemed to push his father too far, when he really tested the limits of their relationship. And as you're about to hear, it was a defining moment for Bob. It was a Sunday. Bob says he was about 14 years old. He'd been out in the alleyway doing what kids did before cell phones, namely throwing rocks. Bob ended up breaking a neighbor's window. The neighbor walks over to Bob's house, talks to Bob's mom, tells her what happened. In a panic, Bob blames his brother, Bill. Says Bill broke the window. This lie, it doesn't hold up. The neighbor points to Bob, says he's the one who did this. Bob says his mother was furious. And she tells him, basically, your father will deal with you when he gets home from work. A little while later, dad arrives. And his mom launches right into it. Jim, that's it. This is it. You know, he's out of control. This has been going on too long. It's time you give And then she tells him what happened. His dad is not happy. I mean, here he's come back from a long day of work, walking the streets, enforcing the law, and he learns that his troublemaker's son has broken a window and then framed his brother. And mom is pissed. Something has to be done about this. So his dad escorts Bob to the bedroom. We go in there. He gets his police belt, his old policeman's belt. which, he, And then he goes and he closes the door. And he tells me, bend over the bed. I bend over the bed. And he starts hitting the bed. Mind you, his dad is not actually whipping Bob. He's just pretending to whip him. And you can hear this thump, thump, thump. And I start hollering, pretending I'm hurting. And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm screaming real loud. You know, oh, oh. And my mother now thinks she's beating me half to death, I guess. And she opens the door. I laugh now. I didn't laugh then. She opens the door, and here he is, and here I am, and I look up, and she goes ballistic. She goes ballistic because she's caught on to the ruse. And at this point, she's not happy with Bob or her husband. What's the matter with you? That's why he's the way he is or whatever. And my dad got, 
it so shook my dad up. He started hitting me with the belt. I got under the bed because I mean he 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 was like a madman for a minute. <laughs> and when I come under the bed, he grabbed the bed with one hand, picked the bed up, started trying to hit me under the bed another couple of times. And I I'm crying because I mean it's it's it hurt it really hurt. And then get in your room. I go in the room. <sighs> Wait, Bob. What got you? What what got you so upset all of a sudden? What did that? What what was that about? I just saw him coming in the room. I just saw him coming in the room. He came in the room. And he was crying. I mean, I mean, crying. And he comes over. I'm, I'm laying in the bed. And, and he's on his knees apologizing to me for, for doing what he did. In all the times that we talked, this is one of the only times I heard Bob like this. Somehow he was shaken by this memory of his father the good cop, the pious man, the almost priest, who's been flummoxed by his son's constant transgressions, the gentle dad who finally been pushed to the point of violence, and then, in a fit of shame, the distraught man who'd come back and asked for his son's forgiveness. Remembering all this seemed to upset Bob horribly, and the pain, it seemed to me anyhow, was not in his father's disappointment, not in what his father had done to him, but in what he had done to his father and the love his father still felt for him, despite it all. I don't think, uh, you know, I don't know of anybody who has a more interesting relationship with a father probably than me. Because like I say, I did all the things I did as a kid you would think he would be, you know, I'd be the, I'd be the worst in his mind of the kids, and yet even though I am always getting in trouble and doing all these things, he always treated me as his favorite in every way. You know, the fact he wouldn't discipline me, he didn't believe in laying a hand on me, things like that. It was an unbelievable relationship that I had. Do you think he was? Do you think he was disappointed in you when you were? up to no good? The fact is, he was not. I mean, I was still his favorite son in every way. It's, I mean, what more can I say? Bob told me this repeatedly, that he was his dad's favorite son. This got me thinking about what kind of dad Jim Cooley was, so I asked Tim. My father loved all his sons, loved all his children, 
He really did. But it was, it wasn't a very demonstrative sort of love, you know? I mean, he would, he would tell each one of us, you know, you're my favorite son. (laughs) You'd roll your eyes and you'd know, you would, you'd know that he was meaning, he was meaning something to be, you know, to be meaningful. I mean, he was basically saying, I love you, but he had a hard time saying it. And here is yet another crucial difference between Bob and Tim. When Dad told Bob, you're my favorite son, Bob absolutely believed him, took the gesture at face value, almost like confirmation that despite everything he'd done, that he hadn't come up short in his father's eyes, that he still always had the blessing of the pious man. And for Bob, as far as I could tell, this seemed to be like a green light. As for their mom, Tim told me she was at a loss on how to raise Bob and hold him accountable. Bob was such a handful (laughs) that she didn't know how to deal with it. And I think she saw him getting away with stuff. And, And I think that has, that kind of explains Bob on some level, is that he never really paid the consequences for his actions, which is why maybe he was willing to to do actions that were really beyond the pale, ultimately. When Tim told me this, I started to see it. Bob grew up in a home where he could flout the rules. And he came of age in a city where the rules meant even less. There was no accountability for Bob, anywhere. No one he had to answer to. Except, of course, the mob. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. 
and an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Ever since he was a kid, Bob had a rebellious streak. I guess he could say he had issues with authority. And that pretty much never changed. Even years later, when he was a grown man and a lawyer for the mob, Bob was still throwing rocks and breaking windows, testing the limits. And I'm going to tell you a story about a situation Bob found himself in, a real crossroads, where he took it upon himself to challenge the mob and its power, which, as he would find out, wasn't so wise. There'd be no fake spankings for this offense. So it's 1981. Bob is representing a friend of his, a gangster who'd gotten in trouble with the law, a guy named Frank Ranella. And one day, Bob hears from a prosecutor in the case who tells him, essentially, there's something you need to know about your client, Frank. He's been a government informant in the past. Bob understood immediately that this would be a death sentence for Frank. The mob would murder any insiders who cooperated with the feds. That was a hard and fast rule. But you know how Bob is with rules. And besides, for Bob, this whole thing just felt wrong in his gut. If somebody told me they were going to kill somebody and, and I knew that they were going to do it, I would have found a way to, you know, to warn them. That's me. Bob says he decided to help Frank, his friend and client, escape. I drove right to Frank's house, and when I went upstairs to his apartment and I told him, he puts a gun on me. He thinks I'm, initially, he thinks I'm setting him up. And he says, I'm leaving now, and you're walking out in front of me, if they're out there. As Bob tells it, Frank walks outside, looks around, and sees that no one is waiting for him. So he realizes this does not appear to be a setup, understands that Bob was truly just trying to help him. Frank passed away over 20 years ago, so I couldn't talk to him and get his version of events. 
But I did track down his widow, Faye Ranella. She still remembers Bob's visit. He just he had this air about him, very arrogant, very above it all, so to speak. I just didn't care for him. After Bob arrived, Faye says that he and Frank went off to talk in private. I sat in the front room while Bob Cooley talked to Frank in the bedroom. I was not privy to that conversation. Frank later told Faye that he was in trouble. They're going to try and get me is actually what he said. Them meaning the mob, I'm, I'm, I was assuming at the time. They're going to try and find a way to get me, put me out of the picture if I go to court. Frank told her he had to get out of town. She was devastated by the news. I mean, he he was everything to me. Even though he he told me at the very beginning of our relationship, he says, I want you to know something from the get-go. He says, I'm nothing but a 14-carat bum. A 14-carat bum. Gold on the outside, bum on the inside. It's like a warning to me. You get involved with me, this is what you're getting involved with, okay? And now it was almost like Frank's prophecy had come true. Trouble had finally arrived at the doorstep of the 14-carat bum, as predicted. Luckily, with Bob's help, Frank had gotten away. But now Bob was on the hook. I went back and asked Nick the gangster about this. He remembers when all of this happened, and he appreciated the enormity of what Bob had done, the risk he had taken. You do things like that, you're telling a guy that you're gonna, he's going to get whacked. Well, you're giving him two avenues. If he's got money, he can run. If he doesn't have money, or even if he has money, he can run right into the arms of the FBI. Meaning you've given him a chance to switch sides in order to save his own skin. And now he might talk, spill his guts. So what Bob had done, it was no small thing. There would be consequences. It's a death sentence. Would Bob have understood that when he did that? Yes. Oh, yeah. Bob knew the inner workings of the mob better than some of the Bob guys did. So what's your sense for why Bob did that? Loyalty. Well, Bob's a loyal guy. Bob, Bob, Bob wasn't, didn't want anybody to get hurt. And Bob doing that, he crossed the line big time. Bob understood this. And so he wasn't entirely surprised when, shortly after this, he got a tip that his own life was in danger. So Bob ran for it. I flew out of town, went to California. I was there for about a week. And I said to myself, you know, enough of this. I can't, you know, I can't live like this. I've got to go back and I've got to get it straightened out. He flew back home and decided to drop in on one of the mob bosses who he knew pretty well. It was a Wednesday. And this is important because Bob knew that this mob boss went to the same restaurant every Wednesday to meet with his guys sat at the same big table right in front of a picture window. Bob says he just shows up unannounced and motions for the boss to follow him to the bathroom. And here, Bob makes the case for why he should be allowed to live. I said, I did nothing wrong. I said, Frank is my friend. He's, he was your friend. He did nothing to hurt you people. He wasn't wearing a wire on you guys or anything. But I want you to know, too, that, you know, I did nothing wrong. I did what I thought was the right thing. It, it didn't hurt you people in any way. I said, I'm back now. I'm here to stay. I said, if anybody thinks for one second, I'm going to even take a beating. I said, you know, they're, they're thinking wrong. 
I said, and if I think I got a problem with you, I said, you're going to have the fucking problem. And kind of amazingly, this seemed to work. They let Bob be. And I have to confess, I found this really odd. Kind of hard to believe. I mean, really? Bob makes his impassioned, don't you dare kill me speech in the bathroom, offers his moral justification for what he's done, throws in a bit of tough talk, and all is forgiven? It seemed, well, too easy. So I asked Nick the Gangster about this. He had to keep on doing what he's doing because Bob was the fixer. And they knew he was the fixer. He says Bob didn't really walk free. It was more like the mob had done a little risk assessment on Bob and decided it wasn't worth killing him for now. So as long as Bob kept being useful, as long as he kept fixing cases for the mob, he was safe. But that meant he couldn't just walk away. If he would said, I'm going to quit, I'm going to walk away, after everything he'd done and all the cases he fixed, and he know and that's knowledge he has, they, they would have definitely killed him. But Bob couldn't quit. Bob was a lawyer, but he was like a mobster too. You just can't quit. So, yeah, he was trapped. And it was a diabolically clever trap, if you think about it. You got drawn into the mob by the allure of it all. The money, the power, the glamour. But you did what you were told. And if you tried to assert yourself or follow your own code, you did so at your own peril. Because then the trap tightened. And then you really had to do what you were told. Or one day, you ended up in the headlines. Dead. Just another mob hit. Throughout this time, in fact, throughout Bob's entire tenure as a lawyer for the mob, he says he never really discussed what he did with his mom or his dad. Though there were moments when he got a sense for what his dad thought about the mob. Like once, Bob took his parents out to dinner at his restaurant, Greco's. And as it so happened, Pat Marcy was also there that night with one of his associates. If you remember, Marcy was the mob's political czar the guy who asked Bob to fix the hitman trial. Anyway, as Marcy and his friend got up to leave, Bob says his dad turned to him and said, Son, I used to arrest those people. Bob wasn't sure what to make of this. His father's memory had started to go at that point. But even so, it was an unsettling thought that Bob might be in bed with his father's old enemies. Then, sometime after this, Bob's father's health took a turn for the worse, Bob went to see him in the hospital. His dad was in bed and looked very weak. I was there for about maybe 15, 20 minutes, and I could see he was getting worse and worse. And that's when he suddenly looks at me, and he, and he was, like, you know, not that lucid for a period of time. And, and he just looks up at me, and he said, Son, he said, Son, why are you wasting your God-given talents with these people? These people. He didn't have to specify who they were. It was almost like he was speaking in Bob's code, saying without saying. But Bob, he understood. He was talking about all the gangsters and corrupt politicians. He was talking about the mob writ large. He was asking Bob, what are you doing with these guys? And then his father said one more thing. He brought up a bit of family history that Bob knew very little about. It involved Bob's grandfather, who was also a cop and had been killed on the job. 
he said, do you realize that my father, my, the person who killed my father uh, got off because the case was fixed? I was like in a state of shock because uh, I had never known that. I had never, you know, I had never realized that, you know, it was the first ward people that, that this case was fixed. I just knew that he was killed as a policeman. According to Bob, these were among the very last words that his father ever said to him. It was like he was giving me a message. I can't tell you that the story about Bob's grandfather is entirely true. He was a cop and was killed on the job, and the alleged killer was acquitted. But the whole bit about the first ward guys fixing this case, well, that's more like family legend. What does seem clear to me anyhow is that Bob's dad was sending him a message, a final bit of fatherly advice. It was like after all those years of going easy on Bob, of not disciplining him, his dad was finally putting his foot down, telling him what he really thought. What are you doing with these guys? And this raised a delicate question for Bob. Could he escape? Because it didn't seem like the mob would let him go. Nick the gangster had said it best. Bob was a lawyer, but he was like a mobster too. And you just can't quit. Next time on Deep Cover. The world of Chicago justice, abuzz with scandal. Press leaks of a huge undercover investigation into bribery in the nation's largest and busiest court system. Cover is produced by Jacob Smith and Amy Gaines and edited by Karen Chikurji. Our senior editor is Jen Guerra. Original music and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra and Fawn Williams is our engineer. Our art this season was drawn by Cheryl Cook and designed by Sean Carney. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Maya Koenig, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Mary Beth Smith, Brant Haynes, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Megan Larson, Royston Beserve, Lucy Sullivan, Edith Rousselot, Riley Sullivan, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the rest of the season right now, ads-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. 
To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus